John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 447.mk0737, certificate number 25222, facilitated communication. Look at it. D. R. E. Look at it. A. M. E. T. I never dreamed. Look at it. T. H. I. S. This. W. Get it. A. S, this was P. I never dreamed this was P O S S I B. L. S. I never dreamed this was possible. Uh, this is kind of a backward way into the topic for a change, but yeah, this is how I Weird. got. This is how I got into it uh, today, this week. Do you ever? Like keep. Li- I was recently watching the top fifty Metacritic rated movies of two thousand twenty one. It's a relatable situation. <laughs> no, it's good. Have you, do you do you don't you find that boring to try to? You've never like exhaustively like read an author's complete works or you know watched a a full list of movies in order, somebody's top no, 10 list. No, I have never, <clears throat> I have never done that. I, I'm not, um, it's not how I consume media. It's kind of the opposite. <clears throat> do, you think, do you think it kills the fun of well, art to no, I'm systematize just, it? If I, if I listen to a record by a band I love, oh, I'm sorry. If I find a record I love by a band, I really don't want to listen to their other records. I'm scared to. Uh, because what if their other records are bad? Also, which they usually are. Uh, yeah. Also, the same with novels. Like if I find a novel uh, that I love, I w- I don't want to read that writer's other work. I I find a new novel by a different writer. I think that's not crazy, especially with books where there is some diminishing returns. I mean, you come to find that many writers are just writing the same book over and over. Yeah, like Both I got because that's what their readers like, and because exactly. your book is you, and you're still you. Bands too. I mean, I, oh, I, yeah. I got lucky with Steinbeck and Vonnegut when I was young, and there were multiple books that were good, but um, but I didn't read all of them. And like The Cure, like The Cure, the, the Cure have been so many bands over the course of their of their decades, and one of their records I think is one of the best records ever. And a lot of their other records I think are really terrible and scary. Well, that's so. just because you're not interested in that phase of the cure. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Don't you just listen to them and be like, Oh, this is a, this is a different band. This is early nineties cure. Well, yeah. A different band that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I want to only, only like, uh, like the bands that I like. And I don't, I guess I don't feel loyalty, uh, so much like every subsequent built to spill record after ultimate alternative waivers, I was terrified it was going to be bad, but I kept enjoying them all the way into the, into the mid two thousands. I mean, partly because they did, they did stick to the formula, right? They kept sounding like built a spell, but their music had, had enough, enough depth that I, that I liked it. But, but like, I've never watched every Hitchcock movie. I would never think about it that would that sounds that sounds like torture like you're gonna watch every hitchcock it sounds like an assignment yeah from beginning to end like what are the early ones like 
Uh, he did a lot of silence in the UK. Some of them not even suspense films. Silent movies? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he was old. Huh. And so they're a little bit of a slog. But I mean- you, you say this because I know you have watched every Hitchcock film. I think I've even seen most of the of the early silence. Wow. Yes. And we have certainly done the thing where we're like, oh, we'll get this, um, let's get this Hitchcock box set and now we'll just watch them all in order. And you're right that it does, I mean, not so much the sense of an assignment- I like to excel at an assignment, John. I, know I don't, you I don't do. know if you know this. <laughs> I've, I've said to many people who uh, who want insight into who you are as a person, not strangers, Does but this like happen a lot. Pe- people that know you that are like, "What's Ken really like? What's the key to unlocking?" I say, you know, he keeps a little card in his wallet that says, "Idle hands are the devil's plaything," and he pulls out, pulls pulls his wallet out every morning. He goes, "Right, right, right, right. Idle hands are the devil's plaything." <laughs> I mean, you're making it sound like I watch Hitchcock movies in order or uh, read all the 33 and a third books in order just to keep myself from masturbating. <laughs> yeah, to keep the demon dogs from, Which you know. Not a, that, I mean, <laughs> scratching at the door. I mean, that's not wrong that there is some kind of Protestant work ethic part of my brain where I'm like, hey, like in uh, in listening to this record or in putting on this movie, I'm uh, continuing my my quest <laughs> to you know, I can, con- contain all I can. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that, there's that. And there is some, there, you're right. There's some completest joy, but there's also like, I can cross an item off a list now. I'm right. This is number eight and I just finished it. And tomorrow maybe it'll be number nine. And we all like to cross things off lists. But I do feel like, you know, knowing you, you have a, you have uh you do employ all of that as part of your encompassing, knowledge of the world. You do right? want to see it all. You, you want know, to see it, it all. It bugs me if somebody says, Hey, there's this great director. And I'm like, I've never seen any, I don't know anything about Turkish movies, but it's not idle consumption. You do then apply that knowledge. You know, it's, you're, you're like building out the house, right? I, ideally. Yeah. I mean, once you watch all the Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcocks, then you have that room of the house somewhat completed and you can build on top of it. Yeah. And you, you watch somebody else and you compare him to you know, Carol Reed or some other director. I'm kind of living in a, like a Danish tent camp where it's sort of like (laughs) people are coming and going. (laughs) Yeah. There's like, I mean, my bed is made of furs, but there's no, no, nobody bothers to put a foundation. We're not going to be here that long. Don't even meet all your neighbors. It's going to be somebody, it's going to be some Latvian girl tomorrow. Exactly. Uh, uh, For me, the virtues of it, particularly with movies, like why I've been doing this critics list is, um, I mean, first of all, it gets rid of that awful moment where you're just staring at a Netflix menu, like possibly with your significant other trying to agree on something or even find something you'll both. No, no, you pick. No, no, you pick. Well, well, the thing is auto-playing all the previews. Oh, I hate that. The the game is to scroll so fast that you never have to hear like the Stranger Things music. Here's a pro tip. Mute. Just push the mute button. Just mute your TV. Yeah, and then the thing can be a autoplay, screamy previews, and you don't even, you just, you, you mute it, and then you also, like, unfocus your eyes, <laughs> so you don't, like, get any clues. Pretty soon they're going to actually have a retina, uh, iris tracking, pupil <laughs> tracking, so they'll look, know. Look! Uh, you did not watch that whole trailer, so we're going to play it again. Otherwise, you have to pay $31 a month. You and I are both on record as hating previews. Well, previews that reveal... Any aspect of the plot. Oh, that's the other thing is if you, if you do this, you know, let's, let me just go down my list. You know, if I say to Mindy, oh, hey, the next movie for us is something called Faya Dai on Criterion. And we just turn on a movie called Faya Dai and we find out it's kind of a tone poem docudrama about the cat leaf trade on the Horn of Africa. Too late. Hmm. We've already committed to Faya Dai, <laughs> and we, but we didn't know a thing. Like it just... The universe presented that, and uh, we both kind of like that. Like, we hate the thing about going to a movie and you know what all the plot beats are going to be because the trailer actually told you, yeah. here's what the second act is, here's the twist in the third act. No, no two listeners, Ken is looking at a list on his phone, which is another thing that I tell everybody. If you want to know, you want insight into Ken, just look at his list. Look at app. his notes app. <laughs> so we, I have two but, lists right now. But wait a minute. What, how often do you guys then just sit down and it ends up being a like like come and see or fires on the plane where it's just like a, like a movie of total heart wrenching devastation, a movie of endurance. Yeah. Like here's, here's a, here's a documentary we made about like, uh, like mercury poisoning in children. That's just like life. You know, like I wake up today and is it going to be a good day or is it going to be a Russian war crimes? It was a good day. (laughs) I don't like that song because it's very anti Seattle supersonics. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, So I have two lists right now. One of which is, Metacritic's 
list of the best movies of last year as of what appeared on the most top 10 lists. And this is going to be a pretty conventional kind of critics consensus of what was up during award season. Power of the Dog, Drive My Car, Licorice Pizza, Dune, West Side Story. All, know, good, all good movies, all, all smart unimpeachable movies. Unimpeachable stuff right? that would have, and you know, but then it gets down a little lower and then you're like, oh yeah, no, we never saw that, that, uh, uh, Oscar Isaac's the Oscar Isaac movie that was what's his name's follow up to uh, Paul Mazursky's follow up to First Reformed. Let's watch that. You know, you get down to the bottom and it gets weird. But I have a second list, which is all the movies of 2022 listed by their meta score. But now wait, if you're doing is, this, how are you also rewatching every episode of Thirty Rock? <laughs> it, which I think is the most rewarding thing anybody can do. One thing we do find is we often have a lot of lists going in parallel. Oh, okay. Like we were doing all the Terrence Malick movies in order, and then like there's only like seven or eight, right? And then we got lost halfway in between. When you sit down, do you watch a serious movie and then follow up with a palate cleanser? Sometimes. Yeah. If, if the movie's short, like, oh, this is only this is only 100 minutes. Like, let's put on a an episode of a half hour or whatever first, you know? Right. Let's watch a Russian doll or a Barry or something. So, yes. But, um, and we all, and generally we alternate, like I'll just pick a movie, then Mindy will pick a movie. Cause I, we always hated that kind of wandering through the blockbuster feeling of, yeah, yeah. No, what, no, you pick, no, you pick. Well, what you do you, what do you, you want to watch? You loved getting lost in a blockbuster. What are you talking about? It was better than a Netflix menu for sure. Cause you could like, you know, produce funny v- VHS boxes and be like, is this finally the night we rent, uh, murder in the first with Sean Connery <laughs> or cleaning the cube or you still go to, uh, Scarecrow video. I love Scarecrow. And that's all... That's like just going to a museum or yeah, something. Right. That's the same experience. But like, you're right. You know, going back to Russian war crimes or whatever, like the second list is just all the movies ranked from last year, ranked in order of their overall critic score. And what that weights oh heavily toward is... Um, <clears throat> movies that nobody can criticize. That's true. <laughs> movies that have not a single bad review. So the first movie is a like, <laughs> just a gloomy long uh, foreign drama about Bosnian war crimes. Because <laughs> no one's going to give that a... It's a, it's, it's a really no. good movie, but it's a tough sit. Yeah. And then the second one is this, is that um, that Questlove's concert movie oh, about the Harlem... Which is a totally great movie. Uh, maybe the best edited movie I've ever seen in my life. But it, it's stuff like that. You know, suddenly there'll be a long form PBS documentary about City Hall, and then there will be a... Uh, 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 like a little micro-budget sci-fi movie made for a streaming service. And then that'll be a, an indie movie with Elizabeth Moss. And then it'll be, you know, so, you know, it's just something new every night. But it's, this list is much more like, um, here's stuff you never would have picked because it didn't make it on any critics' top 10 list. Right. This is <clears throat> the opposite of watching every Hitchcock film from start to finish. It's like a total smorgasbord. Grab bag. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which seems like exactly the way to, to consume media in a modern, like, uh, Cornucopia. And you still get that endorphin rush of, uh, Ooh, I'm, I'm checking something off a list, but also it's I, like, I don't have that, but also it's, <laughs> but, you, but you, I don't get an endorphin rush from but, checking off. Well, it's cause you've never done it. No, I've never made a list in my life. What if you, what if you actually, John, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. <laughs> what if you actually did make a list of things you wanted to do and then you did one and then you put a little X by it. You just see how that feels. Uh, Maybe you'd get a little scary. A shiver at the base of your spine. That's scary. How do? I, what do you put at the top of a list? Like the the biggest thing in life, right? Like like uh, be happy, and then after that, you you put get rich. I mean, how how do you? What about what if it's just watch a black and white movie about Bosnian war crimes? <sighs> I don't. I'm not sure I can live up to that. <laughs> Did you know, John, that I used to make websites for a living? <laughs> I've heard this. And when I look at you and I think about that, it's really easy to picture. <laughs> That's exactly what I imagine you doing. I'm always here wearing a short-sleeved white dress shirt. Yeah. I'm like, huh, what is he? Oh, it, the computer guy's here. Hey, the computer guy's here. Oh, no, can you it's fi- Ken. Can you fix the router? Yeah. Why am I always fixing your printer every time? Why, why Can't you keep your printer configured? Could you make me a website that does everything I want but is a lot cheaper than you would think, even cheaper than that? It used to be so much trouble if you wanted your own website it was the worst it was so hard the you'd have to know all this back-end stuff you the, had to know all these nerds the software was bad awful dreamweaver uh the you had to drink all this mountain dew nobody even bad knew. for your health 64 ounces of mountain dew a morning like what was a website even supposed to do it was not just making a website that was hard it was using websites that were hard 
everybody now, it's so much, it's universal. Like website creation is now open to all. Through no, the amazing, that's not true. It's still only for nerds, but, but I see what you're saying. It has been democratized by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. Thank goodness for Squarespace. They are how I built my website. They are how I built my band's website. Squarespace has been there for us through thick and thin. The best-in-class templates. Like, it's already there. You just choose what the look is you want, and it supports everything you want your website to do. E-commerce, whatever you're making or doing, you can sell it there. Not Not just sales, but inventory management, checkout, secure payments. All, everything's there out of the box. What's cool now is that they have appointment scheduling. Ooh, are you starting a business that has appointments, John? Well, so I've been thinking about this. That's the thing. If is you it Reiki? A, or do you do Reiki massage? It's not. It's it's maybe going to be life coaching. It's maybe going to be a little like some exotic dancing. But if you have a, a business where you're like a personal trainer or you have consulting services like I'm going to do or you're a general contractor, you can add online booking and scheduling to your Squarespace All site. that calendaring stuff built in out of the box. C- clients can see your availability. They can reschedule if needed. I, I, that would be right there, a thing that would keep me from doing, from branching out into this exciting new job opportunity. Just managing all that. Of exotic dancing? That. Yes. Because that's all. You can do all the dancing. You just don't want to have to. I don't want to manage the calendar. Don't want to run a whole company to schedule all your bookings. If you want to start a new exotic dancing business, head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. Send me an email telling me where your Squarespace site is going to be so I can review your content. Well, why do you, this, this is a competing exotic dancer. Well, I'm, are inspiration. Are you going to hack their website, no, try to crash it? It's just a shared community. It's a community of exotic dancers. We all, it's a rising tide, lifts all boats. Maybe you guys could have a little dance troupe. Yeah, right. Or dance off, but it'd be a friendly dance off. A friendly and erotic Erotic dance off that's virtual and hosted on Squarespace. How do I get started, John? You go to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, that's the thing. You haven't committed yet. You're you're on there. It's, it's free. free. When you're ready to launch, then you punch in the offer code omnibus to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Wow, 10%. That's right. Thank you, Squarespace, for supporting Omnibus. Thank you, Squarespace, so much. That's squarespace.com slash omnibus. Going through this this list of just kind of random good good for you right. documentaries, foreign films, and indie films. Good slash good for you. Uh, I put on a movie called The Reason I Jump, knowing nothing about it except it was a documentary. And I think it was kind of short, so... It's a basketball movie. We probably watched yeah. <laughs> It's that one where Kevin Bacon finds a Sudanese guy and puts him in the NBA. It's called The Reason I the Jump. The Reason I Jump. No, The Reason I Jump is actually based on a Jap- best-selling Japanese book that uh, got a ton of attention in the West when it was translated by David Mitchell, the novelist behind uh, Cloud Atlas uh-huh. and uh, and things of that nature. Is he fluent in Japanese? No, he didn't let that bother him. Okay. If I'm remembering right... I'm always uh, curious about translations of books by people that don't speak the original language. I think there may be a, an, a Japanese spouse in the equation oh. here. Yeah, he is married to one Keiko Yoshida Mitchell. So did she translate it? I think it was a joint project by the two of them. And it spoke to them because I believe... Again, I mean, I'm pretty sure. I think they have an, uh, a child with uh, somewhere on the uh, autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. A child with... Uh, with autism spectrum disorder. And they, like a lot of readers, really fell for this Reason I Jump book by one Naoki Higashida. And the documentary uses uh, Higashida's book as kind of a framework. You, you, He doesn't appear in the movie, but you see kind of a, a winsome Japanese boy skipping over puddles and looking at the sun through a fern and watching rain on his window. Uh, absolutely describes what I did yesterday. Your, your life is a Terrence Malick movie. I did all That's why you don't things. need to make a checklist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he is saying just very wise and insightful things about what the world, the outside world looks like when you are autistic. Oh. He talks about how perception is just radically different. The way the brain processes sensory information is so different. And it's really kind of a, a jaw-dropping set of insights. Like, you know, you look at 
you, you neurotypical people look at something and you can immediately see what's important and what's not. You can immediately see a whole and, and, and a narrative. You can see past and future and, and you know, understand how it fits into its context. You know, he says, I don't see any of that. I see a series of details that I then kind of have to just actively build into a whole. Uh-huh. And, and, I ch- and I choose how that happens. And I don't see past and future the same way you do. Like to me, something that something noisy or happy that happened to me 90 minutes ago just might immediately affect me right now. And, you know, it was just kind of a very uh, poetic glimpse into a, a, a beautiful and different mind. And then the movie uses uses that as a jumping off point to show a bunch of um, uh, different autistic people around the world in different situations. You know, many of them nonverbal, uh, many of them, you know, not on what we might call the the higher functioning end. I don't know if that's not a terminology we use now. But is, is this <clears throat> is this suggesting that that people on the autism spectrum are actually living in a multiverse? <laughs> Yes, possibly. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like, when I see that rock, I'm I see also it seeing before and past and future. I'm seeing the lava that formed it. I'm wow. seeing its its counterpoint on uh, Earth six one six. Kind of blowing my mind. I'm now seeing it with googly eyes on I it. I want to watch this. I mean, this is the kind of uh, it, it's not it's not a super you know. There's really no attempt at a scientific backing for any of this. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's, it's him. A poem. Ex- it's him explaining his his truth. And, and you see, and many of the little the vignettes we see around the world of different autistic people, mostly kids, are really compelling. A girl named Amrit in India who is an extremely talented and prolific painter, and you see her just preparing just hundreds of works for a massive gallery show. Um, there's a set of parents in Sierra Leone who have to actively convince their community that their nonverbal autistic child is not uh a victim of demonic possession. Right. You know, that there's not like, it's not like, please, you can't, you don't have to stay away from her for um, reasons of, of a devilish infection. You know, please don't throw her down a well. Exactly. Like there was no sin involved here. It's not a sin to, you know, be kind or accepting to her, to offer her education or, you know, because that's something they've, and they've had some success, you know, with kind of turning their whole school and then starting a special ed community in their, in their city. Um, British kid named Joss, whose uh, you know, whose parents just love him to death, but he's now he's getting in, he's a teenager now he's a a big strapping cranky hormonal teenager and they're you know they're starting to be issues with you know safety of his siblings right um, so like you know really wrestling with with big issues that are really going to resonate with anybody who has ever had or worked with an autistic child and you know like all like all overeducated Americans my own friends and family circle are full of kids that have a 504 or an IEP plan and a, and a spectrum diagnosis. Um, what are a 504 and an IEP plan? The, just like in, uh, in many states, including Washington, a, a diagnosis of autism can get you um, government-protected, civil rights-protected oh. educational um, uh, treatment. You oh, know, like, oh, oh. like constitutionally, the state has to provide for accommodation for your diagnosed disability. And that would include perhaps, you know, if I have sensory issues, you know, I can wear my earbuds in class, even though, uh, you know, the kid next to me would get yelled at. Right. I see. Or, um, you know, I might get more time for a certain exercise or, uh, you know, it's just legally and educational accommodations for dispensation kids on the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I know tons of people who's it's, 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 it's no longer, unusual or stigmatized. But again, these are mostly higher functioning kids. And the emphasis of this movie is on kids who are nonverbal. And that brings me to the moment in the movie that kind of surprised me. They show um, two American kids who are friends um, being homeschooled. And even though by all appearances, they're not verbal, they can't speak, they're not, don't appear to be, they don't give the indications of what you and I would look like paying attention to a teacher or a speaker you know, eye contacts all over the place. They're just kind of, they're making non-speech noises continually. But the teacher has them um, pointing with a stylus at a letter board. And they, while they're kind of doing this um, kind of unusual affect, they're answering questions. You know, she'll review. So we were covering 20th century Argentine history. And who was the president we talked about? And they poke out P-E-R-O-N. That's right, Peron. And what was unusual about his administration? Who, who followed him in the presidency? And they tap out W-I-F-E. 
yeah, his wife, Ava, they may remember we watched a clip from the movie, about, you know, so you're watching these students just kind of to our eyes in their own little world. Wow. And yet their hands are poking away at, at attention showing answers. And it reminded me of the documentaries I saw in the nineties about facilitated communication. Do you remember this dust up? Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, the movies in the nineties, um, Jerry Maguire, uh, you know, I only first <laughs> watched that two nights ago. Are you kidding me? I never saw it in the theater. So this is your system. You watch movies that I'm about to mention two days later. It's weird because I also am living in the multiverse. <laughs> no, I have no idea. It was late at night. I was walking around the house and there was something about show me the money that had come up that day. And I knew that it was about it was the multiverse some, was speaking to it you. Was something about Jerry Maguire, the ghost and I was of Cooper like, Gooding. You know what? I never saw that movie, and it's a, and it's supposed to be good, and it's by Cameron Crowe, who's and I'm a fan. So you do like an assignment? I don't the, know. I don't, the from your subconscious, it was just some weird. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of midnight, and I was like, I'm just gonna sit and watch it. And I watched it, and there it was. And now I've watched Sm- it. smash cut to you at two a.m. just weeping copiously <laughs> as. <laughs> As Tom Cruise comes back to Renee Zellweger's Little Women's Group. Well, and the thing is, I'm a big Renee Zellweger fan. Oh, hey, we're all Zellweger heads on. Right? And I didn't know that this was like really early on in her career. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like proto Zellweger. That's her, uh, that's her reputation making movie. That's her Oscar nom. But no, I'm thinking of the movie with Robin Williams about Oliver Sacks. Oh, uh, the, the man who missed Awakenings. Awakenings. Um, and that kind of being the introduction to the idea that um, because there there were movies uh, sort yeah. of in that in that school nonverbal people with an inner life yeah and the, and the idea that oh they they were catatonic I'm not sure if that's still the term but that in fact they were all present um, but no I don't I don't recognize facilitated communication it, it was that's right it, and the 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 breakthrough of facilitated communication was not tied to autism. You know, it was supposed it was, uh, you know, the, the billing was, this was something that could help any nonverbal person to communicate, whether it was autism or cerebral palsy, or just you know, a, whole, a whole confluence of different intellectual and physical disabilities, you know, maybe including those kind of catalepsies from the Oliver Sacks work. Um, it all started in 1989 when a Syracuse professor of education named Douglas Bicklin went to Australia. Never, never a good move. Wow. Uh, that's another thing I've never done. Gone to Australia? No, it's on my. It's on a list that I've never made. What if you just make a list of Crocodile Dundee movies and watch them all? There's just the one, isn't there? Well, there's three. What? See? See? <laughs> Why would they make you another need, one? You need a notes app in your phone. Uh, Bicklin was a researcher at Syracuse who had uh, specialized in uh, studying... Um, he was in the education department. His particular bailiwick was care for the intellectually disabled, you know, the kind of care and education they were getting specifically, I think in state run facilities. And he would do a lot of, uh, on the spot on location kind of study and training of these people. And while he was in, uh, Melbourne, Australia or, or Melbourne, Melbourne, as, as our listeners insist that we say, uh, he meets a woman named Rosemary Crossley, who in the 1970s has come up with this technique uh, for helping autistic people, nonverbal people to communicate that she's had just remarkable success with, um, supported typing, facilitated communication. And it works like this, the, the nonverbal person, the communication partner, he or she is called, um, has a facilitator, a partner, some kind of a caregiver or, or educator, um, Touch their arm, make physical contact with their arm, and which for a lot of uh, autism spectrum people is intolerable, right, or not not pleasant. I guess you yeah. know this. This is something you might have to accustom certain mm-hmm. uh, certain people to, or uh, or maybe it just works best on the ones who are you know if it's already a trusted person, maybe in many cases. Okay, touch arm. Touch them on the elbow. Touch them on the shoulder, or the wrist. You know, it can be anywhere on the arm. And you'd show them, um, you know, some kind of visual tool in, in many cases, a tablet or a board with the alphabet on it, or maybe a, um, depending on reading ability, it could be a, a series of icons. And she and the other special educators here were just shocked to find 
that people who had never been able to communicate when they had this kind of comforting hand on their arm uh, and this, you know, and, and questions asked them, they could point to the point to icons, be responsive. In many cases, they were shocked to find that the, um, that these supposedly nonverbal, these nonverbal people could produce just complicated and elaborate thoughts, like including literacy, you know, that they had, uh, they, you know, they understood the meaning of the letters and could, could spell things, um, given time. Did the, I, I, did the hand on the arm, uh, was that a major feature of this? Yes. It appeared to not work without physical contact. Oh. And, you know, given the kind of, you know, the new agey view of medicine in the seventies, you can kind of see how that would resonate. Well, of yeah. course you need that human connection. Yeah. You know, the warmth of trust is really what leads to the, uh, and the the theory that grew up around this was was that look these people have always had these remarkable thoughts and insights, you know many apparently could even read and spell, but they were uh, prevented from doing so not by their the workings of their brain but just by things like motor function. Yeah, you know the, their mouth wasn't working. You know the thoughts couldn't get to their tongue. Their you know their their uh, their hands couldn't write them. Um, but if you if you give them away where could, they could just kind of point and jab, you know, bigger muscle groups, then suddenly they're all there. And Bicklin is just overwhelmed by this, returns to Syracuse, founds the Facilitated Communication Institute there. This is what year? Uh, we're now into the early 90s. We're around 1990. Um, and this is like a bomb going off in the community, the autism community in the United States. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, exclusive to autism, but, but it... But it connected with the with the autism. Yes, community. because they had great results with a lot of non nonverbal autistic people. Right, people with autism. That, you know, the community is divided on which phrasing is more sensitive, more human. Um, so somebody's going to be pissed off whether or not I say well, sure. autistic people or people with autism. That goes without saying. If I alternate, maybe I can piss off the most or the mm, fewest. I think the fewest. Okay. Everybody yeah. knows that you have the best intentions, and that's really what's important. Yeah. I'm here to listen and learn, John. But uh, uh, so a lot of this is just down to the fact that we've always been, until very recently, um, very willing to believe that that people that they're uh, that e even minor disabilities just kind of eliminate people from contention as right. full human beings. The best thing we can do is kind of keep them out of sight. And, and you wouldn't express it that way in the 20th century, but we still have the legacy of that way of caring for the disabled, right. you know, institutionalize them. Then the family doesn't, they're not a burden to the, you, just, you think of them as far as their effect on others and not as fully human. When you look back at uh, the movie Rain Man from 1988, mm -hmm. which now I have no idea how Rain Man is received in the larger culture, but at the time it was, it was both considered like almost a documentary in the, in terms of it's like, you know, gritty realism. And also... Uh, what a brave like, way to humanize this odd guy. Yeah, and exposing <laughs> just the general idea that that this institutionalized person had a had a life and a soul um, through the through the agency of Callow Tom Cruise. And he, he Tom learned a lot of lessons that he day. He sure Kind did. of like when he left his sports uh, agency to found his own his own firm with his little mission statement mm -hmm. in, in wait a minute are they in the same are they in the marvel comics universe both those movies the tom cruise multiverse <laughs> yeah i'm reading a book right now that i just happened to my mom like asked me to turn into the library she's like can you go up to shoreline and turn this in i really thought you were going to say my mom asked me to turn in a report <laughs> yeah I'm, so this is why i like to watch movies in order because when i was a kid <laughs> i had to turn in a report every week please listen to all the led zeppelin records in order and uh no, she wanted me to just return this book, and it's it's a recently back in print book by the guy, the composer of the Music Man, talking about its odd road to Broadway. Because mm -hmm. he, he was just some non, he was just some radio guy and kind of corn, corny Midwestern comic, kind of some Garrison Keillor type who suddenly had this hit musical. And uh, if you'll remember, there's a character in the Music Man who has a lisp, and he really is drawn out of his shell. This kid is drawn out of his shell by the the con man. Do, you, I, you know, you've never seen the Music Man. No, I'm not a musical theater person either it's a con it, artist who, despite being you know very like uh, you know early 90s uh yeah where's your where's your love for rent and uh <laughs> we know you don't love phantom i was i was deep in the i was deep in one aspect of the culture but i always as soon as as soon as uh 
As soon as Julie, Judy Garland came up, I always like headed for the exits. But now that you know she's been played by Renee Zellweger, <gasps> now, now how much would you pay? She was? Do, do I have to watch a movie for such a Judy For such Garland? a big Zell head, you don't really know most of her Oscar-nominated work. I don't. I've only seen the ones that I saw by accident. <laughs> Cold Mountain, eight times on a plane. I've seen it. <laughs> Ken, you used to be a big blogger. Uh, During the golden age of blogging. You were so good. And I, you know, I believe that as social media dies and we all keep uh, dirt on its grave, that people are going to get back to blogging. I think people are still writing and producing content online a ton of ways, and that's not going to go away. And what's great is that, you know, uh, that localizing your content on your own site um, that allows integrated commenting that supports comment threads, replies and likes like you get to create your own culture and maintain it in a kind of garden of your own design. And there's nothing better for it than Squarespace. You mean the all in one platform for building your brand and growing your business online? Yeah. They have very powerful blogging tools to categorize, share and schedule posts. And, uh, it's optimized for mobile. So it's basically, uh, an opportunity to create your own personalized social media. You don't even have to worry about cross-posting because it's built right into any Squarespace beep because it's built right into any Squarespace site. They'll auto-post your content to Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook, you know, all the different kinds of brand pages you have already optimized and tagged. Descriptions and titles are going to be right across all those platforms. It's a super convenient way to get your content out there. This seems like the future to me. As uh, as we all leave social media behind, and let me encourage you to do that, create your own social media site at Squarespace. Just head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I think I may have I done this bit on the show before. The Music Man is about a con man who comes to town pretending to be a marching band traveling salesman every other episode you tell us about the plot of the music band. and then he sticks around for months actually selling the kids instruments and and uniforms the instruments and the uniforms actually come so this is a very complicated con oh okay and oh, then and only then does he skip down <laughs> but, but so he actually gives he, he gives yeah, the service so that it he, turns out it's not a con <laughs> he's just a salesman i guess he was, he didn't have any musical credentials oh it's more a movie about outsider art i think <laughs> Anyway, the main character, one of the main characters in the movie, a young Ron Howard, is this lisping kid who really comes into his own and becomes more confident when he learns to play he's the given cornet. A recorder. When he's given a cornet, yeah. <laughs> um, but this, in the is, this is basically the the whole theory behind every kid gets a recorder in 1970s grade school. This will bring the lisping kid That's out right. of his shell. Today you would give him an IEP, but that back then you give him a recorder. So somewhere in there they gave him electric shocks. Oh yeah, let's, let's best not to look too closely at this period. <laughs> Um, so the, in the early drafts of the play, and Wilson keeps saying this in this book, he keeps calling him the subplot about the spastic boy, uh-huh. because that was the, you, you realize as you read all this kind of awful sounding prose, the spastic boy was so important to me. There's no way we could lose the spastic boy. I had seen how people were treated, um, just because they had a cane or a wheelchair and blah, blah, blah. And it was important for everyone to know that they were only physically retarded and not mentally retarded as we so all this nomenclature that we would just cringe at today other than race i don't think there's any set of of terms that have changed more in the last 10 years than the ones that we use to describe or or you know or explain disability Because because you and I come from a time when those were the we didn't say you know spastic anymore like Meredith Wilson did in the sixties. Oh, I think I think I, we still use that term when I was a kid in the seventies, early seventies, like at recess. You, you think that was the, the I think it was still a diagnosis term? or or at least a a uh, it it sounded scientific. I think in nineteen seventy seven. Anyway, you have to remind yourself that this author is using what to him were the latest words. You know, he's debunking all this stuff about how people with intellectual disabilities. Or, you know, people with physical disabilities are not all there, you know, and cannot be treated as people. But at the same time, he's using Rain Man style cringe nomenclature, you know, calling him the spastic boy and using the R word. I mean, it um, took a long time. I think I <clears throat> I was still getting educated on it in the, in the 2000s. And when, uh, and when it comes to uh, tricky diagnoses like autism, it's very much a moving target even today, as we're going to see. Like, what does awareness and best practice of the of the disorder look like is it a disorder even um 
But you know, when when Bicklin work, work when Bicklin's work comes out, this is you know like Prometheus's discovery of fire for all these families who have had this nonverbal member or have been caring for somebody nonverbal because suddenly they couldn't communicate with their own kid before. Right. And now their kid can tell them everything. And inevitably the first thing they hear is just expressions of love. Wow. And that, you know, the kid is aware of, you know, just all they've sacrificed and is grateful. And, uh, Bicklin promises full participatory life. You know, you're, you thought you were, you were some part of, you know, this kid was a challenge. The world treated your kid like a burden to you. And now all these things you, couldn't hope for independence, career relationships. These might all happen for your for your child. Did the was it the same interface in each case? Was it just as simple as like, oh, it was an iPad the whole time? No, I think they were different. Um, I think the sometimes it was a set of icons. Sometimes it, you know, as technology got better, some eventually it was a BlackBerry. At first, it could it was just a stencil or a, a an alphabet board. In many cases, some kind of of tablet. Um, the whole point was that the person could indicate one icon or letter. But it time. wasn't sometimes it was a saxophone and sometimes it was a, a like a set of math equations. It was it was, no, generally... it was always a, it was always a set of visual icons, usually sometimes pictographic, but usually typographic. Like usually it was spelling, like like a deaf or hard of hearing person finger spelling. Um, the problem was when once there was an academic institute at Syracuse and elsewhere, there was started to be study of it. Um, and from the beginning, it turned Darn out it. to be very high now. <laughs> Study of it, it turned out to be very hard to replicate any oh, of these benefits boy. in actual rigorous laboratory settings. There come the scientists. Here again. come the scientists. Debbie Downers. So immediately, even in the first couple of years, there are already people writing, "Hey, we need to be cautious about this." There were already professional debunkers of the amazing Randy. You know, the famous skeptic sure. James Randy, the guy who was offering Yuri Geller a million dollars if he could bend a spoon in, in lab conditions. How have we never done a, a omnibus? We're, we're going to have to do okay, one, yeah. right? Yeah. Like. He was great. Our favorite atheist here, Good at, old Randy. here at the Omnibus. But also Yuri Geller, you know, on the Carson show. Great Yuri, entertainment. Our favorite spoonbender. <laughs> and when they met, Sparks. Imagine some Frost, Frost Nixon kind of movie, but it's um, Ran, Randy Geller. Um, Randy slash Geller. So is it, was the suspicion that the hand on the arm was guiding? That's exactly what it was. Um, and in fact, as people started to test this, they found that there was no way that the communication partner, the nonverbal person, could produce results unless it was something that the facilitator had seen and was aware of. You know, you you would ask the facilitator to leave the room, show the communication partner a color or an apple, have the have the facilitator come back and then ask, um, you know, what did I just show you? And it, that's a very easy test to run. Yeah, and it the uh, facilitated communication failed every time. Oh. And very quickly, the uh, literature turned against it. Oh, bummer. Um, all the big... By the time I, I first heard about this in a frontline documentary called Prisoners of Silence that I watched part of for a psychology class in college. And it was structured just like this, where they showed all the amazing leaps forward and the just the, um, the, the weeping, grateful parents and the families that had been brought together. And then it was like, and here come the scientists and the whole thing. And you can, ima- you can imagine what it just... Uh, crazy thing that was for people to try to get their heads around yeah because the whole thing what this what the scientists soon learned is that the whole thing appeared to operate on the principle of the idiomotor effect the same thing that powered um planchette seances and ouija boards for, right for a hundred years i'm think i'm thinking it sounds exactly like that Right, like I'm, I'm in contact with your dead son, and he says he loves you. And those people were not all intentional fraudsters, right? I mean, maybe most of them, in fact, were not. It's just that when the brain subconsciously wishes to move the Ouija board, convey it, you know, move the Ouija board, you know, very small subconscious movements can produce order out of chaos, and even the person doing it is unaware and is amazed yeah. that the ghost is speaking, or in this case, that the that the child or the nonverbal person is speaking, and so. You had years of parents having great results and then being told, actually, just this terrible epistemological truth that you were controlling, you were talking to yourself, you were puppeteering your own child and all this intentionality agency you thought was coming from them. It was just uh, you pulling a string, you you pushing an arm. And um, what a drag. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. 
And so, and, and as a result, FC has been called the cold fusion of autism therapies because there was this year or two of hope, as you'll recall from our cold fusion episode. It was all, it was in all the newspapers. This is what year? Uh, therapy started in the U.S. around 1990 and by the early 90s it had kind of collapsed. Oh, yeah, so it I only was, lasted a year or two. That's when I was most super on drugs. Uh, hard you, to believe I was you so You were watching Frontline? <laughs> hard to believe I was so on drugs I wasn't watching Frontline. Which, but. which do you think are the best drugs to watch Frontline on? What drug wouldn't be good to watch Frontline? <laughs> um, and as it turned, you know, in hindsight, so as all Maybe the- Maybe L-Dopa. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's how you can catch the ball uh, when Oliver Sacks tosses it to you. Uh, so all the big uh, medical or associations that had been kind of casting a doubtful eye on this, the, the pediatrics ones, the psychology ones, the ones specifically related to special education or, or, or speech therapies, all these institutional groups unanimously said, regretfully, this is a pseudoscience. Um, this is Ouija board. Um, technology. And by the time I heard about it in the mid nineties, I kind of thought it was over. And the, honestly, the, the scars left by the FC boom are worse than just false hope because there were some really depressing and awful cases. There was a, a caregiver who had noticed some changes in, uh, the autistic uh, uh, boy she was treating and used facilitate communication to have him reveal to her that he was being molested. Oh, of course. By That's his parents. The, there's the nineties for you in a nutshell. Satanic panic. Um, but with a Ouija board. And, uh, so parents were falsely charged, faced criminal trial as, as sexual molesters had their child taken away. Um, and it gets worse. Uh, a woman used facilitated communication to find out her son was saying, I need a lot of drugs to die peacefully. I wish you to do it soon. So she performed what she thought was euthanasia only to be charged with murder because that was her moving his elbow. And, and it makes you wonder what the, you know, when you hear about how the first thing that the kids always say is just how grateful they are for the years of love and sacrifice. You realize that it's not just, um, kind of a, a word spelling themselves haphazardly that really the things that parents want to believe are, are what's wants. coming out. Uh, but nobody was like, there's gold hidden under the foundation of the old farmhouse. That's what we need is for <laughs> new information to be provided by facilitated communication. Yeah. Um, that would be better than like, was I holding an apple or an orange? That would really be like, <laughs> there's Confederate gold in the fireplace. Um, so this woman actually had to face murder charges for, or maybe manslaughter for, for killing her son. Um, and because she believed that he was telling her. Yes. This is a, uh, this is an unlivable life, and she has to find, find out later that not only did she just, you know, kill a child who had never expressed that kind of agency, but also some part of her apparently had been eliciting it from his elbow. Right. Ugh. And then the worst, maybe the worst of all, is there's a series of cases where a caregiver starts to feel a very special bond with their communication partner, and the communication partner begins to profess love to them, and it escalates into a sexual relationship, only to find that they've essentially assaulted a disabled intellectually disabled person by moving his or her arm to say, I love you. My love is like a red, red rose. Oh no. I think we should get married. Do Um, not let people around other people. I think is the lesson here. Well, yeah. Pseudoscience makes everything worse, I guess. So this is a Rutgers professor who ended up going to jail because he, uh, she, Oh, she, it it was a woman with a 33 year old man who became convinced that, uh, you know, and this was the, the 33-year-old that she was taking around the country to show the great benefits of facilitated communication. So you'd think, given that I saw this documentary 27 years ago, more, almost 30 years ago, so wait, that this she, would be settled. She was, um, she uh, was in a sexual relationship with this person, and it was accepted at first because. Because facilitated communication was had, considered had reve- true, they had revealed the truth of of you know cerebral cerebral palsy and autism and a lot of these diseases, which is the person is just like us, and he was and, in is, his, and is in there and is in his and is in a shell. He was in his thirties, so a, a, a consenting adult. Yeah, and then facilitated communication was debunked, and then she was charged. Yes. Wow. Well, I'm not sure about you. Some of these have happened more recently. Whoa. So because here's the thing: you'd think this would be over. 
But in fact, what I found out watching this, the reason I jumped documentary is that facilitated communication, it was such a beacon of hope to people that oh. whole autism communities have not been able to let go of it and right. have been built up around defending it. Right. Um, it's been rebranded as supported typing just because the the name facilitated communication was such a stigma. Supported typing is a worse name. Supported typing seems like something you take in high school in, in 1967. It's some Mavis Beacon thing. So people were unwilling to yes. to surrender the hope and, and when the all the joy. Ma- and when all the mainstream disability and pediatrics groups, you know, revealed it as a pseudoscience, they just started their own competing fringe apologetic ones that are built on the principle that that FC was legit and okay sure maybe it rolled out so fast that there were a lot of untrained people and so you got a lot of bad results but you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. we saw our kids tell us they loved us you know tell me that's not true and it's just it's a real painful can of worms so is there some kind of sidebar accreditation society that that has its own um counselors worse than that there's yeah there's massive nonprofits that are contributing millions to these pseudoscientific academic groups that are continuing to push fc and kind of um and the offshoot technologies that we saw that i saw in this documentary um including rapid prompting therapy rpt um which when you watch it is pretty much facilitated communication there still has to be it only works with the second person magically and that person has to be there's no necessarily arm holding anymore. So they've said, we've, we solved the problem with, with FC. There's no arm holding anymore. Now the, but the person is still holding up the tablet or stencil or whatever it is and still has the opportunity for cueing in many ways to produce the student who's writing Perone or whatever. Or later in the movie, uh, you know, a lot of these kids produce kind of lengthy inspiring oratory about the kind of what a civil rights issue this is and how they're, you know, they're on the forefront. Of, they're fighting a society that's denying them their personhood and refuses to prioritize their education when they could do anything we can do. You know, it's really, really good, feel good, um, anti-ableism rhetoric. And it leads to this unsolvable tangle of who is saying it. But, but, but is there, <clears throat> obviously if you could just leave somebody alone with the, iPad and they could do all this communicating with it. And that is a thing. It is. Well, sure. Think about, uh, for many oh, people, oh, oh, it I is. see what you mean. You yeah. know, think about Stephen Hawking, you know, who does have enough fine or did during his life, had enough fine motor skills that he could, that he could make his machine talk for him. And there are, because autism is such a broad, you know, spectrum of, of different ways it presents and different abilities and disabilities. Um, you know, there are plenty of autistic people who can learn to communicate by, you know, gesturing to things, pointing to icons. But is there a possibility that there's a subset of people on the spectrum that can only communicate when there's somebody there? That is the question. And you watch this documentary and you realize, I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah. And this documentary is actually, it turns out after doing some reading, it is made and directed by some of these leftover facilitated communications partisans that are still fighting their lonely war from their Pacific Island or mountains of Spain or, you know, wherever the partisans so, live. So, so you're saying the Eva Perone kids were, were being prompted. That's not a feel good story. There is no way to know. Oh, wow. There is no way to know if Naoki Higashida's book, in fact, like the, uh, the consensus among traditional medical professionals is that Higashida in fact could not have written his book that um, his book came out, you know, initially it was, trumpeted as a triumph of facilitated communication right that look what the movement produces this kind of um eloquent beautiful autobiography from memoir from the least likely person and now it's kind of been because of the book's success in the west now that fc link has been scrubbed away and of course his mom was always touching his arm when he wrote the book but you know you can find clips of other documentaries where he they make sure he's photographed without somebody touching his arm and he's still kind of poking away at his little hiragana katakana keyboard. But what a laborious process to write a to to right. write a book where it's really your mom writing her dreams about of, what about you would be what like. What you would be like and she's just unconscious that she's doing it. And the stakes could not be higher. Like I'm very uncomfortable sitting here and saying 
Hey, I watched a documentary and I saw <laughs> I saw a lie. I saw a, a, a home a weird homeschooling mom pretend that that you know her relatively you know very intellectually disabled kid and her friend knew who Juan Perón was because I don't know right. But it's certainly and there are cases on the movie where it seems very convincing. You know, the person is just is just tapping away and you're like. That, that, there's no way that's a Ouija board, right? Like that, that person has to be spelling that. But there are other scenes where I, knowing what I knew about FC going in, I could watch more carefully. And there's one scene in particular where you can absolutely see the adult holding the tablet, moving their eyes and hands in subtle ways before the autistic person does. You can see her leading them every time. So she looks at the letter and kind of, and the board moves slightly because she's, she's holding the tablet and the stylus taps down. And she, and she reads the thing and then, and she does it again. And he, you know, you, you see the kid's eyes and kind of attention move the same place hers are. And he taps it there. And I really am thinking I'm now the amazing Randy. And I know that that adult is producing that message. And it, it gives you a creepy feeling because if it's not coming from the agency of the disabled person, then it's the worst thing. It's a caregiver projecting their own thoughts onto a disabled person and just using them as a prop. And it's super icky. But super fascinating that, that the, I mean, for the, for the person with autism to be following the prompts is a form of communication or is a sign of a, of awareness and participation, even if they're just, you know, like seeing the, yeah the communication and following it, they, they're motivated and, and they have, a, do and they somehow. must have a weird empathy with their with their caregiver if they can if they can sense their attention change and know that oh that means I I jab here you know right. I mean, this is how this little game works. It's not like Mister Ed being being pr- no. prompted to clop his hoof. It's no. a it's it's a it's a form of communication even just to mimic. But when but when a beautiful poem emerges about right. about dr- raindrops and mud puddles or an inspiring thought about how we treat disabled people in this country, you, <laughs> right. you kind of need to know that it's coming from the person and not right they're not being used as a prop by a well-meaning caregiver it's such a crazy it's on like again a crazy spectrum where clearly there are like how 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 can you even design the experiment to know well to know what's happening now this, by the way, the Syracuse Facility Communication Institute is still there, although it's been renamed the Institute on Communication and Inclusion, oh boy. In, in hopes of uh, yeah. in hopes of uh, not losing their funding, <laughs> right? Um, or maybe getting more funding. But they've had some success getting this view of of autism that um, the, the the future is getting these kids to jab at alphabets. Um, they've had this incorporated into the. Big Obama, the big Obama era Department of Education, like some kind of $25 million injection of money into American schools called SWIFT, which is the the school-wide integrated framework for transformation, which is kind of a the US government's biggest special ed grant ever. What really? Yeah. And it's all about, you know, inclusion for for intellectually disabled students in classroom. And it's <laughs> a lot of it is language that was uh, and programs, the curricula that were designed by a lot of these descendants of facilitated communication advocacy groups. So are, are autistic kids being placed in classrooms and then... Yeah, this is a technique. But this facilitation is happening by what, just regular public school teachers or peers? Yeah, um, I think, you know... Caregivers uh, in the classroom, uh, you know, f- educators, special educated, oh, special education professionals that are have been trained in some of these FC adjacent technologies, like um, uh, rapid prompting therapy and others. And it's just kind of the whole thing is built around the fact that this is the best thing for these nonverbal kids um, is to be taught this way. Syracuse not only still has its institute, but it actually made Douglas Bicklin the dean of education in 2005, over a decade after his whole um, shtick had been discredited. The dean of education? Yeah, he's running the whole education department. Still? Uh, no, now he's emeritus. But as, as recently as 2005, he was. And a lot of these advocacy groups that are, that are uh, trying to keep the cult alive, it's an article of faith for them that 
these abilities both cannot and should not be tested. Oh. That you should that you should not be testing this stuff in clinical situations because you need to have faith. I mean that's that's I mean that's one thing. First of all, the, the results will always be bad because it's they say the whole Yuri Geller thing. Well, of course I can't do it in a lab. That's that's a stressful environment where the energies don't flow and the right. you know and I get you know. But also yes that um, that it's insulting to disabled people that they should have to demonstrate their agency. Like the, the, the article of faith for all of this stuff, the bedrock of it should be a presumption of authorship for all these thoughts and words are actually coming from the person with the disability. Cause otherwise, what are we doing here? And that anybody who questions that is that's, they're committing an act of, it's an insult. It's an act of ableism. Are there still debunkers, active, engaged academic debunkers that are, that are out still trying to, I mean, you know, as, as seances moved out of the mainstream, it was because more and more, uh, Harry Houdini's were, were challenging it. Is that not true now? Yeah. The, um, you know, the people trying to keep it alive are still very much an academic, um, minority who keep having to make their own propaganda documentaries and form their own advocacy groups because all the big pediatrics and psychology and therapy groups are still totally against, you know, still cautioning against all these FC adjacent technologies. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know, there's no, there's no laboratory results supporting them. You know, they were, uh -huh. they refuse to try to produce any, any studies that will, that will show the benefits or the efficacy of, of RPT. Um, I think it's pretty easy to find people failing to find it. You know, yeah, the yeah. active debunking of the pseudoscience continues. But it's just watching the documentary, you you understand how high the stakes are. You know, am I is this an adaptation of a book by an autistic person, or is this an outsider pretending they know what the disability is like? I mean, and and which view is more enlightened? You know, like if if, if all these descendants of facilitated communication are a pseudoscience, then you know they're committing it terrible crime to disabled people by projecting their own biases onto them. You know, that's, it's just as dehumanizing as saying, I'd like you to be in a home where I don't have to, you know, you don't have to be part of a burden on society. But if there's truth to it, to, to refuse to right. acknowledge it is to condemn people to silence or. And if there's a gray area where, you know, some, some of these good results are, are, some, you know, some people are actually gaining new, participation in life from the, this tech and others are just mirroring what their care, what their facilitators want to say. And it's even thornier to untangle. But, um, you know, the modern view of autism is very much to emphasize the awareness that, um, that in many ways, uh, this is not a, a disability to have an atypical mind that there may be strengths that come with seeing the world in such a different way. But it, to be, to be uncommunicative and, that's the barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so it's almost a retrograde view. This idea that all the you know, oh, that in, they're in, all beautiful souls. In terms of modern autism awareness, it's actually pretty an awful thing to say to say that you know all nonverbal autistic people are actually just like us. They share all our um, goals, priorities, emotions, sensations, perceptions. It's just that they're trapped in this shell and can't communicate them. Right. And once we find a way to puncture that with a little handholding then we see that they were just like us all along. That's not the most forward-thinking view of autism nowadays. You know, that's very regressive. Yeah. But you know, communication is so key to how we form societies, how we, how we think of ourselves, like what are, what, like human beings are defined by our ability to communicate in some ways with one another and, with, and grasp larger principles. And, and so it's almost inevitable that we would want that this would be the battle line of how yeah. of how we consider autism would shake out. Yeah. Yeah. Because we love stories, you know, the feel-good stories of the autistic kid who can, at one glimpse, then draw the skyline of Manhattan. All the savant-like abilities. Yeah. And, you know, that, that famous story about um, the therapist who realized that you if you put an autistic kid into a mascot costume, all of a sudden they were... They came alive, you oh, know. Oh yeah, hey, you remember that? I remember. That, I do remember that. Where it was just like uh, the the ability to, be, or just the the form of a costume had uh, this liberating 
nature. Yeah. So the uh, there are all these unexpected effects and breakthroughs that come with because we we don't understand the the constellation of of uh, of symptoms and abilities and disabilities so well. Yeah. Um, that it's not impossible that that this would be the thing that that lets them speak to us. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, I don't at all want to sound like I'm saying that the limitations of science might also be in play here. I think you should be able to test this stuff. Yeah. Skepticism of science is not doing great right now in our society and other fields. <laughs> no, you should be able to test it, but is are we testing the right things? I mean, you know, or like how do you test what do I want to say, right? I mean, how do you test personhood? Right. Right. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. All these people deserve dignity and the fullest participatory life they can have. It's just a question of what is that consistent? Or you couldn't really use science to test for love at all. We just need more chill psych labs, you know, with a really good vibe. Word. I think we, I think we should set up one here in the bunker. No Milgram experiments. Just <laughs> something that both FC believers and skeptics can agree is, a, is just the greatest possible vibe. Just a, just a chill Vibe. Just some beanbags, and then we'll see what happens. And that concludes Facilitated Communication, entry 447.mk0737, certificate number 25222 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication for a while, was theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can hang out with other futurelings who will surely be debating every nuance of this episode. I wonder if there are, are going to be like very strongly felt partisans of, of both views. 100%. Because, you know, the more fringe of you, the more likely you are to to just feel it in your bones. That yeah, we, we will hear from both sides of, of this uh, argument, both on our various uh, fan sites, wherever the word futureling appears, and also probably in our inbox at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Or you can text John uh-huh. at 801 555 7474. Uh, you can mail us your thoughts in long letters uh, to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And if you appreciate the show and and uh, listen to it twice a week, week after week, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, there is bonus content there, but think of that as a bonus for supporting the show Supporting the show is its own reward. The good feeling that comes with helping others. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our stab at civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe of fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.